0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This summer, I've been running an occasional series of interviews with authors who have written about the question of how to intervene in or respond to mass atrocities. The interview we're about to do isn't really, at least not strictly, part of that series. And yet, in a different kind of way, It's going to focus again on the question of how to respond to a mass atrocity, but from a very different angle. My guest today is Noah Shanker. Noah is the author of the new book, Reframing Holocaust Testimony. The book makes a powerful plea to recognize the importance of institutional procedures and priorities when evaluating Holocaust testimonies. Noah applies his background in memory and media studies to examine three major institutional repositories of Holocaust testimonies. His conclusions challenge us to rethink the way we, we relate to these testimonies, and to testimonies collected from other cases of mass atrocities. It's an impressive work, one which I'm looking forward to discussing. And so, with that, Noah, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies.
1: Thanks, Kelly. I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: I always like to, to, to give guests a, a chance to talk a little bit about how they came to be who they are. And, and so why don't we start, um, how, how did you end up deciding to become an academic?
1: um it's an interesting question uh <clears throat> when I was a young kid um, I grew up in a in a family of well not having any academics per se my grandfather was a rabbi uh, in the Reformed mm-hmm. Jewish movement, and every Shabbat or every high holiday service I remember going to hear him uh, give uh, a sermon on whatever the topic was for that uh, portion of the Torah, but it was always politically uh, Tinged, He was someone who was involved um, with the civil rights movement, someone who was involved with teaching uh, at universities, even though he didn't have a PhD. Um, and I just remember being incredibly moved by um, his form of, of speech from his engagement in politics and in history. And so even though I didn't have it, uh, any academics growing up, it, it always seemed to be an example for me. And so I remember when I went to uh to college. Um, I have to keep on reminding myself to not refer to it as university as I'm speaking to a, an American audience and <laughs> I'm not speaking to my colleagues here in Australia. If I was to say college, they think I'm referring to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when I went to college, um, the first course I ever took, uh, the two, two, two of the most I think important classes I ever took were in my freshman year, not three of the most important classes that I ever took were at a small um, kind of residential college in the University of Michigan and they had a course called I'm listening to Holocaust survivors which was taught by Henry mm-hmm. Greenspan who um, has written quite extensively in Holocaust testimony and the other class was a class called um, visual culture in Weimar Germany and the other class was on psychoanalytic approaches to literature. Mm-hmm. So even though these were really incredibly intimidating classes for an 18 year olds be taking, especially the psychoanalytic oh, yeah. approaches to literature, uh, you know, not, you know, to using Lacan to analyze withering heights is enough to send someone running for the hills. But uh it, it gave me at least a first taste for um the ways in which you know media mattered, um the way whether it was literature or film or testimonies. And I never anticipated going into academia. It was always to be a lawyer or to work in in politics or in government, uh, and then eventually in film. And so when I ended up working out of college at a public relations firm, and surprise, surprise, became disenchanted with that world. I uh, worked as a I worked as a production assistant for some um, low budget films and some huh. commercials that were being uh, created and produced in Chicago, um, and I ended up really enjoying that environment. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll apply to film school, become a producer. And so I ended up moving to Los Angeles and going to film school at USC uh, in Los Angeles, moving there, not knowing the soul and thinking I would study critical studies, which was the history and theory aspect of the, of the school, not the production, not the screenwriting or directing um, portion of the school. And um, just because I wanted to make this network of people who I could then, you know, foster a sense of community and work in production there. And in and, and the course of taking these classes, um, on critical studies, you know, reading theory and reading the history of film and media really became enthralled with it and, mm-hmm. and never looked back. Um, and, and so just the idea that one could become a, an academic, um, in film and media studies, was something that was completely foreign to me, and I, I fell in love with it pretty quickly.
0: And so now you identify yourself, in part, as, as somebody who does memory studies. How, how did that transition happen?
1: Well, I mean, initially I thought I was going to be a film
0: uh, scholar because I had yeah. gone
1: to USC, where the names of Spielberg and Lucas are on, mm-hmm. on every building in the film school, and Zemeckis and Howard and and those names, and uh, I initially wanted to write about the ways in which um, filmmakers like Spielberg with Schindler's List were representing mm-hmm. the Holocaust and became interested mm-hmm. in the history of Holocaust representation as a potential area for a dissertation topic. It was between that or the films of Joel Schumacher. I decided to, uh, you know, I could have been minding the depths of St. almost fire. Uh, my argument that he's the new, uh, you know, uh, Vincente Minnelli, but in the end, I, I thought Trump Spielberg was a more viable option. And um, but in that time, in a in a methods class I was taking, they the 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 professor Professor Tara McPherson took us to the backlot of Universal Studios in, uh, in in Studio City, just over the hills from L.A., hmm. to look at this project that had started not long ago to collect testimonies of Holocaust survivors. And it was the Spielberg uh, project, which was at the time the survivors of the Shoah Visual History um, uh, It had this very long, kind of unmanageable title at that point. I would just refer refer to it as the Shoah Foundation, but Mm -hmm. survivors of the Shoah Visual History uh, Project at that point. And I I became really interested in the work that they were doing and and some of the the ways in which Spielberg, as a filmmaker and the particular sets of uh, tropes, you know, or that is to say, kind of representational. Uh, strategies that he would use in film were then spilling over into into this testimony process and uh that became really not only a question of of film but issues of testimony which are inevitably needless to say issues of memory and so my my entry into the memory studies came through testimony through my first encounter with the with the show foundation testimonies there um and then as my work progressed and working with um advisors at the time at USC like Marita Sturken and then having the great fortune of working with Janet Walker at the University of California Santa Barbara who became a member of my committee uh, the 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 work um that I was doing ended up going in the direction of memory and trauma and I was very really really fortunate to be working with scholars who were expert in those areas and it just seemed is if you're going to do work on testimony, you can't do that without engaging the work of memory, engaging the work of trauma. So um, that's, that's how I got into memory studies, and I've never left.
0: So, so let's turn to the book. Um, and there's some, just two or three terms that you use throughout the book that I thought I'd ask you just to talk about and define briefly. Um, the first is testimonial literacy. What, what do you mean by that, and why is it so important? For me, I I remember um, when I was doing a
1: a fellowship at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. in 2006 uh, and 2007, and uh, I was doing archival research just looking at the institutional protocols of the museum and how they were shaping the collection of testimony as well as the display of testimony. And I was working alongside historians who were really interested in testimony and also with educators who are really interested in testimony in terms of its content, mm. um, especially in the, the the part of historians at that time. So I would often hear, um, though interestingly, in the case of the Holocaust Museum, they did have transcripts for many of the testimonies recorded there. I would often hear something along the, along the lines of, "If only we had the full transcript," as if the reading of the the transcript of a testimony constitutes the content constitutes mm the the textuality of testimony and for me uh, i'm someone who believes in duration and in the process of a close reading and a close looking and a close listening um, and all the various sensory engagements that we have to bring with testimony and uh, that means being attuned to the silences that means being attuned to what's happening on camera the the ways in which the subject that is the witness is framed by the camera whether it's a medium close-up or an intense close-up or a long shot are there gestures or are the uh, tattoos on the left arms of an auschwitz survivor present on screen Um, do they have um, various ways of uh, accenting or accentuating particular phrases so when i mean testimonial literacy it, it means an eye and an ear um, for the kinds of performance that uh, that a witness will bring to the table. But that also means an eye and an ear for the setup of the camera and the kinds of questions that are being asked. Really reading testimony as a text in its mm-hmm. you know physical ways, in its sense, in its olfactory ways, the ways that smell functions, the way mm-hmm. that um, what's happening off camera. Uh, influences and is often as often is as important as what's happening on camera, um, and, and so that's really the the idea of not taking for granted that these testimonies are mediated rather than these raw sources. And and I think for for a lot of scholars in the in kind of the early stages of discussing testimony, talked about testimony either as raw capsules of memory or as works that were to be interpreted or analyzed as literary texts, um, and I felt that they have their own media specificity. And so mm. what testimonial literacy means is to essentially be attuned to what those specificities are and the way they function and how they shape meaning in, 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 in a witness's exchange with their interlocutor.
0: So the second term is, is, is post-memory. What, what does that mean?
1: Well, post-memory is a term that I can't claim any credit for. Um, that would be a term that I um, have to attribute to and have attributed to um, Marina Hirsch from Columbia University and in, in her work, which has just been incredibly foundational um, to, the, to the field of not only of Holocaust studies, but to memory studies more broadly. And by post-memory, she means lots of things. Um, First, it's reference to this notion, not a notion. I mean, it's the, the reality that the population of Holocaust survivors is dwindling, that um, given that Elie Wiesel um, died just this summer, um, and the fact that he was this iconic survivor, in many ways he was the quote-unquote survivor, or the survivor, mm-hmm. Um what do we do um, as the survivor community is building how will the memory that resides with living survivors be transmitted beyond their living presence through testimonies through new media but not to, only through that but through graphic novels like mouse through films like schindler's list or shoah or the films of peter forgosh or others so how how does that memory get transmitted beyond the living survivor to first um, sorry to second generation to third generations to those who have um, Familial connections to the survivor, but also beyond to those who have no Familial connection to the Holocaust and also to those who have no connection to the holocaust Whatsoever, how do we follow the various paths of memory beyond its living presence and to realize that it's not a matter? Let's say in contrast to this um, It's not a matter of transmitting memory as if as if through, a, as if through a, 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 a needle into a patient right mm-hmm. that it's not something that's transmitted raw and unfettered and unmediated but rather something that is um, creates or generates the effects in the case of a traumatic memory without claiming to um, appropriate the trauma of, of that that had been set, of those who had experienced it firsthand so there's been a lot of you know if the New York Times writes about it, it must be a phenomenon right well, um you know, so there's a lot of writing about though I don't uh, though I'm not uh, under the belief at all that it's a phenomenon of any you know extensive nature, which is the this idea that at one point a few years ago, the New York Times wrote a piece of about uh, the children and grandchildren of survivors having tattooed their left arms with the same mm. numbers that their Auschwitz surviving grandparents had inscribed on their arm Um, there was a film called numbered which was about this very phenomenon. and though I don't think it's widespread in fact on the contrary I think it's very limited there is um, there are organizations that I've been asked to consult on and I've declined that that ask the second and third generation of Holocaust um, victims that is to say their children and grandchildren and survivors to give the testimony of their parents or grandparents as if they were their parents or grandparents and Mm -hmm. in places like Hiroshima you have the creation of these memory docents where victims of Hiroshima are training docents to tell their memories after they're gone so this is a a really concrete um, issue and um, and for me and and for Mariana Hirsch it's a question of, of theorizing that not as an appropriative Thing, but it's something that can actually lead to new knowledge and that, that ultimately recognizes that there's a difference right, between the primary victim and those who take on their stories through different representational strategies, through art, through poetry, through literature, through film, and through testimony. But it doesn't, it's not simply something that's transmitted and whole, um, but rather it's the effects and the questions Um, that are raised by that process and the gaps between an individual who survived firsthand and those who work with and interpret and and engage with their stories after the fact. So that's in essence some of the key questions behind post-memory.
0: And then the last distinction, or the last terms with a distinction, and again, this is one you borrow and use to great effect. Um, What do you mean by uh, common memory and deep memory, and what's the distinction between them?
1: Yeah, it's a term that Originates with uh, Charlotte Delbo, and which then gets picked up by Lawrence Langer, and after that by Shalom Friedlander and others who discussed it, um, such as James Young and others. So it's it's a it's a term that's that's widely discussed. Um, the idea being that if we take a uh, a Holocaust survivor, um, and we'll just say. An example would be Chaim Engel, who was a survivor of the Camp Sobibor uh, and who I know we'll be discussing, we'll be discussing his wife at a later point in the interview. Um, He he was discussed in the work of Lawrence Langer. Um, To use an example, if we're talking about Chaim Engel's time uh, in Sobibor uh, sorting the clothes of the victims, The idea would be the notion of common memory, Haim giving his testimony uh, at the Fortunoff Archive in the mid-1980s. There's Haim, as he is at that moment, looking back on the events of the 1940s. There's the Haim of the 1980s who can look back um, with somewhat of a safe distance, the distance of time, say, this is what happened then, That there is often at least a clear, um, linear, or if not linear, at least some sort of reconstruction of what happened over a course of time with a series of events. But that, to use a term, or to borrow a term or a phrasing by Charles Friedlander, when memory comes, in this case when traumatic memory comes, when deep memory comes, it is the collapsing of that kind of temporal I am here that was then, that was there, it's a collapse of that. Uh, it's this mm-hmm. notion that deep memory marks the return to the past and an inability. Basically, it is the, the emergence of the past in the present, or you could look at it the other way, or the return of the past uh, into the present, or traveling back to the past from the present, that it is a moment in which these temporal uh, delineations collapse, where the deep... Traumatic memory emerges, and the survivor finds her himself back at that moment um and often um unable to articulate a clear kind of causal you know, chronology um it's that breakdown in the ability uh to to tell things in a transitive manner um it is in essence it is often marked by silence it's often marked by Uh, An inability to communicate or to render into words that are comprehensible, that which is incomprehensible. Um, And and that's really the challenge that people like Friedlander have raised, is how do we, in the absence of survivors, after survivors have passed, how will you preserve that deep memory, that memory which can't be easily unified, which exists in excess of historical narrative? That is, it can't be said, this happened here, Mm -hmm. then, and this is the reasons and the causes Right, that it exists outside of that trajectory, um, and how do we preserve those moments? Those moments where the story breaks down, the moment when the individual subject breaks down potentially, and when their story is is in an excess of what is possible to communicate. When it is so traumatic that it can't be rendered adequately into words. That sometimes it it registers in ways that are more difficult to read.
0: So, so you looked at three different institutions in in, in this book. Yep. Uh, the Fortunoff Archive, the the Holocaust Museum in the U.S., um, and then the Shoah Foundation. Yes, correct. Um, and you identified several, uh, 13, 14, something like that, interviewees who had been interviewed by each one. And so I thought maybe the place to start here is to ask you to talk a little bit about the testimonies of, and you referred earlier, of Selma E., um, And, and talk a little bit about how those testimonies differed from, from case to case.
1: Selma's, Selma's testimony or testimonies, um, are probably the most powerful testimonies, um, that I've uh, had the privilege of watching, um, not that there's a hierarchy, but for whatever reason, they, they they made a lasting impact on me, as did those of her husband, Chaim, who I made reference to earlier. When I um, first watched, I ended up watching them believe in sequence, so that yeah. my first encounter with Selma was in her first testimony that was given at the oh, Fortunoff Archive, which is housed at Yale University, and it was recorded in 1980 so on a research trip i went to the fortune off archive and i asked to see the videotapes um for her testimony um and i looked at her testimony which was recorded in 1980 and what i remember was the rawness and the immediacy is even though I'm hesitant to use words like raw and immediacy Mm. after I just talked about the ways in which testimony is mediated, (laughs) there was something incredibly um, powerful about her a because the, the camera was a bit more free flowing as I recall. And my memory might be misguided in this respect, but there was a, she had at this point, it had been, um, 35 years after, uh, liberation, um, and, or over 35 years after liberation. And so she still has this, this physical, um, presence that's incredibly strong. And she's, she has the agency and she takes upon herself this agency to communicate with the, uh, the kind of directness and a um, a strength that um, is is really noticeable. And she's talking about things that are a very unique historical nature, given that she's a survivor of Soviet, war, having survived, having taken part, having taken part in the in the uprising there, and having successfully escaped. As you know, very few people actually successfully right. survived the escape from. Uh, the Sobibor death camp. Um, and it was just an urgency in the way that she spoke and an eloquence in the way that she spoke and the ways in which she was able to reflect not only on what she had experienced, but how in the moment of 1980, and this is really important, she was given the space and took the space in 1980 to reflect on the ways in which that memory as she was recalling it in 1980, impacted her at the moment of its telling. It wasn't simply about conveying the details of the past. It was also about the ways in which that past was very much alive in her present moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that was really palatable. Um, so when I went to go look at her testimony at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and that was recorded in 1990, so this is 10 years after her initial testimony at the Fortunoff Archive, I noticed that that urgency, while still there, and the urgency was never lost with her. I th- I've never had the privilege of meeting Selma in person. Um, and But there's an insistence there, a, a strength and determination there that comes throughout all of her testimonies. But at the second testimony that she gave in sequence, this is 10 years after the first Fortunoff Archive. She gives one at the Holocaust Museum in 1990. There's something a bit more um, constrained about her, not about her herself, but by the nature of the interview, um, she she talks a great deal um, about and is asked a great deal about the nature of the up, uprising at Sobibor, the details about how she first met um Haim there, her husband, who would then become her husband, details about um, the escape from Sobibor. Uh, she spent a great deal of the interview um, talking about the content of the past and less about the ways in which that past continues or continued at that point to resonate with her um, psychically. And mm-hmm. um, so that was really noticeable. By the time I looked at her testimonies to the Shoah Foundation, I discovered by sheer accident, and as we know, doing archival work is a series of happy accidents. And I I noticed that she'd given not one but two testimonies at the Holocaust Museum, one in uh, 1995 and an earlier point, sorry, at a later point in 1998. There was no firm explanation that was given to me for that, though I later learned after the fact some of the reasoning for it, which was the the first one was so terrible, uh, hmm. so ridden with um, questions on the part of the interviewer that Selma was not allowed any space whatsoever um, to get into uh, the rhythm of the testament or to be left to give any agency in discussing what had happened to her. But what was hmm. interesting was that uh, two things came out of that interview and the subsequent interview in 1998 which never came up in the interviews prior that <laughs> is to say, in the fortune of archive and in the in the and in, in the holocaust museum which is even though she had mentioned in both of those earlier two testimonies that she had traveled uh to holland after living in poland and on, on the way on a boat um, stopping over in odessa that her and haim had a young son and that the young son died um, and there was reference made to that in 1990 sorry 1980 there was reference made to that in 1990 and while there was reference to that the name of the child was never mentioned hmm. and it's not until 1995 that any mention of the child is brought into the conversation and that's brought into the conversation by the interviewer and it's only in the interview in 1995 that we also learned that Selma was a victim of sexual assault at huh. no other point in any of the earlier testimonies that were taken in 1980 nor 1990 did we learn that and these two events the loss of her son who we learn was named Emil and her sexual assault while in Holland her family owned a hotel um, those are foundational events and events that she um, had not been given the space or perhaps had not felt comfortable to articulate at the at the earlier stages of her earlier testimonies. But they come out much later. I think that says a lot about the passage of time, but I also think it says a lot about the methodologies of the respective institutions which collected her testimony.
0: Well, let's look at those institutions and let's start with the off Archive and, and, and I think we've got maybe five, six minutes for each one of these individual cases, so I know that we'll we'll miss a lot of detail. And I encourage listeners to go go read the book, which um, just a lot of really fascinating stuff in it. Um, but with the Fortune of Archive, so so where did this come from? Well, the Fortune of Archive came. Um, it emerged really as a
1: grassroots effort. Um, it emerged out of New Haven, Connecticut, the Jewish community of New Haven. Um, it uh, emerged as really the the as a response, in large part to what many in that Jewish community, and frankly, what many in the Jewish community um, nationwide, if not on a you know, on a global scale, found as a uh, to, to be played a disenchantment with the popularization of Holocaust memory, particularly through the miniseries Holocaust mm-hmm. um, that came out in the late 1970s. Um, many in the New Haven Jewish community felt that, that film had trivialized, um, the, the experiences of the Holocaust. Ellie Wiesel had written, um, a piece, you know, harshly critiquing that, uh, that film, that miniseries. And, and it was a time of, of mobilization in survivor communities in the United States. Um, so gr- having grown up not far from Skokie, Illinois, having gone to Jewish day mm-hmm. school in Skokie, Illinois, um, which used to house the largest per capita survivor community outside of Israel until somewhat recently supplanted by my current home in Melbourne, Australia, uh, <laughs> you know, it, survivor activism was in the 1970s um, really on a rise and um to to whether it was in the form of trying and successfully stopping the march of neo-Nazis on Skokie and having successfully um, lobbied President Jimmy Carter for the mandate for the creation of a Holocaust museum, which was successful in the 1970s. And then I think this film, or I should say this miniseries on NBC, um, Holocaust the miniseries, really was a, um, an important turning point for trying to counter that trivialization of, of Holocaust memory through the creation of something that was more grassroots, but also much more attuned to um, the, the truth and um, experiences and to the respect and sanctity of, of, of Holocaust survivors. And so the Shoah sorry, the of Archive emerged out of the work of the psychoanalyst and uh, and, uh, child survivor Dory Laub and the television producer, um, Laurel Block, uh, who, based out of New Haven, created what would then be- later become the Fortunoff archive. And that archive, um, was from the outset and with the later work of, um, Jeffrey Hartman, uh, who recently passed away, who was a, a survivor of the Kinder Transport, um, uh-huh. and a faculty member at, at Yale, and then later uh, later on to the work of Lawrence Langer as an interviewer. But even from the onset, the focus was always on making sure that the survivor and the agency of survivors was first and foremost, that survivors would be given the leeway to drive the testimony process, that uh-huh. as much respect and as much... Um, latitude was given to them, Not, and by respect, I don't mean not that they wouldn't be engaged critically. On the, on the contrary, critical engagement was at the heart of that enterprise and remains to be at the heart of that enterprise. But rather that, contrary to imposing a, a rigid um, census-like series of questions and an extensive pre-interview process that would, in essence, deem a testimony redundant, the focus was on allowing the survivor the space to drive the pro- to drive the interview as much as possible and that meant being respectful to the silences being attuned to the silences to use Dory labs term to be a co-owner in the process of testimony to realize that you are sharing um, in essence a special contract with the witness and that there's a special set of obligations which are ethical in nature Which means also recognition that you are not the survivor and that you are not experiencing their trauma, but you are still responsible for helping them, uh, facilitate an expression of that trauma. And it's not about psychoanalysis. The, it's not a, this is not an analytical environment. This is a testimonial environment, but it's still one that is geared and influenced by, um, a respect for. The traumas that had been experienced by the by the witness and making sure that the witness is the one who is really guiding or driving the process rather than the interviewer driving the process. So rather than starting a question or an interview with a question such as please give me your name, where were you born, uh, what was the town um, like in which you were born, you will have a question often along the lines of there is a picture of the past paint me that picture. And I'm paraphrasing, but there are questions yeah. such as that. Um, if your memory is a picture book, what is the first picture that you see? Something that is more evocative of along those lines, something that also generates questions that are, are geared towards the process of telling the testimony as well as about the content of that testimony. Um, and so that's, that was always uh an essential part of that process. And because it's an academic institution in which it's housed, you have to go to the office or say the Department of Special Collections to look at testimonies that was until the Portion of Archive recently digitized their testimonies and are making them available outside of the Sterling Library. For most of its history, you had to go and travel to New Haven. There was no online access. There were no videotapes being sent to you in the mail. You had to go there and it meant putting in the time and the labor to identify the testimony and to um, to really do the work in advance of preparing for that encounter, and so even the mood in which that testimony was made available to involved work and involved a sense of responsibility involved a sense of having to carry a great deal um, with you into that process even as a viewer of the testimony um, and so there was a great Deal, I think, placed on the sanctity of the survivor's experience, and that's also reflected in the fact that um, in the Holocaust Museum, um, and I'm not revealing, I'm not compromising her 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 identity in the sense that Selma Engel is Selma Engel in the Holocaust Museum and is Selma Engel in the Shoah yeah. Foundation, but she is Selma E mm-hmm. in the Fortune of Archive. So, using the first name and last initials to, to, to protect the the identity of the survivor.
0: So the, so the Holocaust Museum um, has a very different mission, um, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what, what Congress um, established for the mission, as the mission of the Holocaust Museum and, and how that came to be embodied most in, in the permanent exhibition, which you call the soul of the – or I, that's not fair, you quote uh, one of the uh, leaders of the initial founding of the museum as saying, is the soul of the museum.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the mandate for the museum was to be a living memorial um, to the Holocaust, but also as part of that mandate included um, part of the planning, and I spent really just you know months combing through the various institutional archives, was to also create um, what what initially was called the committee conscious, which was um, to ostensibly raise awareness of other conflicts, potentially other genocides that were happening in the world after the Holocaust. So even from the outset, there was a mission to commemorate and preserve the memory of the Holocaust on one hand, but also to draw attention to any potential genocides that would take place after the establishment of the museum. So the permanent exhibition or the PE has changed very little over the past uh, since its in, since its opening in, in 1993, um, the permanent exhibition that traverses the floors of the Holocaust Museum was intended to have a, a core narrative structure, a three act structure, in essence. What was life like, briefly, uh, leading up to? Uh, the rise of Nazis to power um, before the Holocaust. Then there is the Holocaust era, and then there is liberation and and life after the Holocaust. And so that three-act structure, um, which is instrumental to many of the testimonies that I'm looking at, including the Shoah Foundation testimonies, was also central to the creation of the permanent exhibition at the Holocaust Museum. The idea... Um, and it was a contentious idea uh, from the beginning was, well, who will be the central victims in this story? Uh, what about uh what about the Romani people, the Roman, the Sinti? Uh, what, you know, and that became a contested issue. And so which victim group would be given more or less representation? Ultimately, it is a permanent <clears throat> exhibition that is focused on Jewish victims of Nazism and though there have been related uh, temporary exhibits, the permanent exhibition is at its core um, about the Jewish experience of the Holocaust. And when they refer to the soul or the permanent exhibition as the soul of the museum, there was the sense in, that they had to, to enshrine um, not simply through um, artifacts, but also through a narrative strategy through interactive learning, through photographs, through um, as many different objects as they could collect or get on loan from places like Majdanek or places from Auschwitz and other places, that they could give you an, an experientially impactful Experience. They didn't want it to be quote a cold museum. They wanted it to be a hot museum, something that would get the blood flowing on the part of the uh, part of the the patrons that would move patrons on an emotional level. And so, at the heart of the, the Holocaust Museum was this challenge of trying to balance the effective with the analytical demands of representing the Holocaust. And it was something that was labored over. I mean, because if we have museum mandate established in the 1970s and it doesn't open until 1993, a great deal of time passes where the content committee and other committees that were part of of the commission were, were really debating vigorously. I mean, just to give you one anecdote that's been also chronicled in the work of Edward Linenthal, Preserving Memory, which is a fantastic book, whether or not to include hair which was taken from women prior to their processing at Auschwitz, hair was given to the museum uh, that museum debated as to whether or not they should put it on display ultimately um, it was decided that for various reasons including the fact that one of the members of the contact committee who was a survivor herself felt that it was disrespectful that it was counter to religious tradition and that what if the hair of her mother was in that pile of hair And so ultimately they they, they took a photo of the hair and that photo a, a mural of that hair is on display a photo mural of that hair is on display in the museum but not the hair itself which was initially put into storage and is no longer actually with the museum so those kinds of debates about what constitutes like how far should the museum go in tapping into the emotive effective aspects of the of, of the Holocaust experience and wh- what are the barriers in this and in some instances quite literally what are the barriers so placing Barriers, visual barriers, so that so that young visitors to the museum or more sensitive viewers to the museum do not have to go through um, instituting literal barriers for younger uh, visitors to the museum or for older visitors to the museum who might have certain sensitivities about graphic images. So the idea of barriers, uh, literal barriers, figurative uh, barriers that happen in terms of um, discussions. In committee meetings about what should and should not be shown are really um, instrumental to that debate. So, even though it's emphasis on being the soul, that soul is one that has to be regulated, one that's calibrated by the planners in in a very, very detailed
0: way. So, then how do audio testimonies fit into the? How how does it end up? How how does the youth museum end up seeing? Is it, it? as at least part of their mission, to amass a, a, a significant body of testimonies, and how did they try, imagine using those? Well, part of the, the initial drive for them collecting testimonies,
1: in the first place, was to have content. Uh, mm-hmm. for you know, Because in the early stages, when they were still trying to envision how the museum would unfold, part of that included the potential for using testimonies at different aspects of the permanent exhibit, uh, permanent exhibition, rather, Um, And though there are audio testimonies that are used um, within the exhibition space. And at the end, the very end of the the very conclusion of the permanent exhibition, there is a a, a film which uses first-person testimony of survivors. They initially debated uh, a lot of different alternatives, one of which was, and this was um, one of the more fascinating ideas, was to use testimonies that they would collect with survivors and to create a, a computer program that would randomly uh, project two to three minute long segments of testimonies just at random um, so that patrons could get a sense of the mosaic quality um the, the, the ephemeral quality as well of the testimonies. Ultimately, what they chose to do was to re. Shoot, that is, it's just an unfortunate use of term, but <laughs> certain survivors who had given testimony at the archive of the Holocaust Museum, and they refilmed them hmm. using less austere backgrounds, filming them in their homes, and they used it for what then became the testimony amphitheater. So initially it was to create content for the museum, and then in the 1990s, um, when Joan Ringelheim took over the process, it was more about giving survivors an opportunity to document their stories to give their testimonies to an interviewer so it initially was for museum content and then it evolved really into more of a testimonial archive along the lines of the fortune archive um in that respect so that was initially the drive a drive towards content the drive towards curating testimony and and that's that's still something that they're struggling with um right now they're they have an installation of discuss this at a later point, if you'd like, which is kind of constitutes the future of Holocaust testimony, so to speak, which is they have a, uh, it's not quite holographic, but it uses holographic effects to render, this is based on technology that the Shoal Foundation has uh, developed in concert with the Institute for Creative Technology, which is an artificial intelligence-driven virtual survivor, which is based huh. on having captured a survivor um, using over 2,000 questions and allowing, allowing museum patrons, in this case in the Holocaust Museum, where Pincus is currently on display, and for you to interact with him, ask him questions. So there's, there's always been the idea that, and this is even from the onset before this quote unquote holographic testimony came into, into being, was using them interactively for educational programming in the, in the Wexler Learning Center, which is just outside of the permanent exhibition. So there's always an educational imperative, there's a curatorial imperative, but it wasn't initially a testimonial one. It wasn't about collecting an archive of testimonies. It, it evolved into that, mm-hmm. but that was that was over quite a bit of time.
0: So, so then, how did that shape their their strategies in terms and, and and procedures in terms of interviewing? The, well, the to witnesses? give you
1: to give you a perfect example, and, you know, in the sense that I'm not sure if you're going to, unless you want to talk about Selma at a later point. Um, yeah, I,
0: I'm happy to return to her now. Yeah. Um,
1: well. Selma was, as I mentioned, a survivor of the of the Soviet board camp of, and, of, and of the uprising. And her testimony that was given in 1990 is a perfect example, I think, of the priorities of the Holocaust Museum at that point. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was directed by uh, Linda Kuzmack. She was the head of the oral history department. And it was really about making sure that content, certain historical episodes were captured and that they could be used to illustrate um, or provide illustration for aspects of the permanent exhibition or perhaps for educational modules. And so one of the most powerful moments in in Selma's testimony, one of the most disturbing aspects really in her testimony, is at the end now they had a policy, they being the Holocaust Museum, of only giving two hours uh, to uh, interviewees. So that's two Mm -hmm. tapes. And they were at the end of the uh, second tape and the end of the tape for Selma. And at that point, they're asking Selma a series of questions um, about having moved to Israel eventually. Uh, But at no point up to this juncture in in the interview had they asked her about what happened to her after the war with her son. What happened to her with the death of who we will later learn is Emil. And as they're running out of time, you can see the look of of concern and anxiety and mm. and anger on Selma's part. But they haven't gone to those questions. And the interviewer, who is conferring with the producer uh, on a headset, is debating, and you can hear this because they think the camera has stopped running, but it is in fact still running. Huh. Uh, and you hear them debating whether or not they're going to do another tape. And they decide ultimately not to. But as the camera is still running on that remaining tape, you hear Selma say, well, that's very interesting because I lost my son. And then you see her arguing with the interviewer about what you didn't know that there was time was running out. In other words, they had, in the course of the interview, gotten to the predetermined area of focus, which was the Sobibor experience. They had mined that area. And so there was no need, as far as they were concerned, at that juncture in the oral history department to look at what her life was like after Sobibor. And yet, if you look at the transcript for that interview, the conversation that takes place between Selma, in which she expresses her anger and disappointment in this discussion of her son, is rendered only as technical conversation. In fact, there is a term called technical conversation, so you don't actually hear. None of that is transcribed. You have to look at the testimony to see what emerges at the very end, all the way to the fate to black, where the most important part of the testimony, at least as, as Selma articulates it, the loss of her son is not given the space for exploration. And the camera cuts out just as she begins to talk about that. And that just happens to be at the margins. It's only because I kept watching. It wasn't on the transcript. As far as the transcript mm-hmm. was concerned, that was technical conversation. And yet, that which the institution deemed to be central, which is to say Sobibor, was in fact much more peripheral relative to the experience of the loss of her son Emile after the war. So the idea that an institution would impose uh, a certain focus on a historical event or on having clear beginnings, middle, and endings, those kinds of preferences um, have costs. And in this case, it's, they come at the cost of a story that is very central, an experience that is very central to Selma, and it's left at the margins. It's still articulated, it can still be found, and that's precisely why you need to have the testimonial literacy to be able to know to look beyond the transcript, to know that even when it seems that the testimony is coming to a close, just as it seems like it might fade to black, something important might flicker across the screen.
0: So, so there's one institution left, and that's the Shoah Foundation. And, and I'm really, as I was reading this, I was reminded of, of, of a class I taught last spring, which uh, titled Holocaust and Its Legacies, and, and, and we assigned Schindler's List. And for the first time that I can remember, no one in my class had seen it. Mm. I'd be Have so, they all seen Inglorious Bastards? So. Um, many of them had, yes. But of course, they're all, well, you know, way too young to have been of the age to see it when it came out. And it's now old enough that this is not something they see routinely. So maybe you could mm. say something about how the Show Off Foundation emerged um, and, that how, and, and how that impacted its goals.
1: No, it was just on a side note. I've noticed that I teach a, a course on film and the Holocaust, and I ask my students to raise their hand if they've seen Schindler's List, and very uh-huh. few have. And yeah. if they seen a film about the Holocaust, most likely it's Inglorious Bastards, and even yeah. then, that's probably a, a bridge too far uh, for them. But uh-huh. how did the Shaw Foundation start? It started in the direct aftermath of the production, or really emerged out of the production of of Schindler's List. In Krakow, where, um, where, where Steven Spielberg and his producer, uh, Bronco Lustig, who is himself a survivor of many, of many camps, um, and just a really singular figure I had the privilege of, of of meeting, uh, Bronco Lustig and Steven Spielberg were approached by people who, Jews from the community of Krakow, who, and others, survivors from from uh, other communities about documenting their stories and testimonies and the story goes and I don't know whether this is myth or truth because this was what Bronco Lustig told me was that on the plane back they had a debate about um, creating the what would then become the Shaw Foundation and trying to determine how many testimonies that they would record and Bronco Lustig recalled to me that 50000 seemed like a reasonable figure given the budget that would be required. With that goal in mind, uh, the foundation started in the back lot of Universal Studios in a series of temporary structures and camping, yeah, not campers, but, uh, but uh, trailers, and uh, eventually migrated over to conveniently to the Uh, the campus of USC where it became a part of, uh, the Division of Humanities, uh, just as I was starting to do my archival research, it conveniently decided to spare me the trip of driving to Studio City. (laughs) So that was good. And, um, it, it became the largest archive of testimony of any kind in the world and still is recording over 50,000 testimonies. Um, and it's subsequent, you know, Move to Rwanda and Guatemala, and to documenting other genocides in other locations. Um, but it was from the outset um, a very Spielbergian um, project, one in which um, Spielberg, as a filmmaker, was really not less through his money than through his prestige driving the process. And in many ways, also as as a classic Hollywood filmmaker, in many ways. Um, who's invested in the three-act structure, that structure bled its way into um, the structure of the testimony collection. So unlike the Fortunoff Archive, and to a large extent, unlike the Holocaust Museum, it has an extensive, over 40 pages of a pre-interview questionnaire, which is conducted over the phone, filled out over the phone between the interviewer and the interviewee. So there's an extensive pre-interview process. There's an extensive process of of um, asking the witness questions ahead of time, and also using that pre-interview questionnaire as the index by which uh, they will catalog and index the survivor's testimony. So these testimonies were all digitized, and they're available through a subscriber-based interface. But the notion was uh, that you'd be able to hyperlink, and you can, across different portions of the testimony Based on that index, but the priority was given to the written pre-interview questionnaire, which was done before the testimony, so that if any aspect of the testimony contradicted that which was recorded on paper prior, that which was recorded on paper would serve as the basis for the index. So it's very much about establishing a clear what, when, and where, uh, almost a census-like litany of questions about name at birth. Spelling of the name, the town in which you lived, what was the Jewish community like of that town, where were certain things located—very much about establishing and pinpointing data. Um, and that's not to say that they're not rich testimonies; they're incredibly rich for many reasons. But just to differentiate it in its methodology, this was one in which um, the interviewer, in stark contrast to the fortune of archive tended to drive the process a great deal more than the interviewee. This was less about the agency of the witness and more about the agenda of the institution. That doesn't mean that survivors, in many cases, survivors are able to transcend that agenda. But it was a much more interventionist approach to testimony, whereby the interviewer wanted to get your examples of what happened to you, what is your first hand knowledge of this? What did it what did you see? In essence using the testimonies to illustrate a pre existing, pre-established historical record. More as exemplars, as illustrators of a history, rather than um, witnesses who would generate new knowledge.
0: Coming back to Selma E, then maybe maybe you can say something about how that impacted her testimony. Um, and the way you read her three, or watch and interpret and, and understand the three testimonies um, put together.
1: Yeah, I know. And, and just to reiterate, I mean, there actually were four testimonies, precisely because mm,
0: the, thank the, you. The,
1: the, 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 because the third testimony that she gave at the Holocaust Museum was so interventionist, was so littered with questions that they had to redo it mm. uh, three years later. Um, the testimony that she gives uh, at the especially the initial one in 1995 at uh, the Shoah Foundation, is less equipped to deal with surprises, with spontaneity, with the emergence of what we talked about, uh, which is deep memory. It is is a a methodology that is geared uh, towards collecting common memory. What happened where, when, who is motivating what action, And so there are moments in Selma's testimony where, to use an example, when she talks about having been sexually assaulted, I have a suspicion that that wasn't even mentioned in the pre-interview questionnaire. And so the surprises that emerge during an interview, um, something as traumatic as sexual violence, the interviewer didn't know what to do with it. And there's this sense where transitivity takes over, where it says, well, what happened then? or can we move on into the next portion of the story? It's about keeping things on track. And so this, the testimony with Selma, while she's still the strong, assertive, and uh, indomitable Selma angle that I had come to know in prior testimonies, at least in her testimonial form, she is curtailed or inhibited by the myriad of questions that are asked of her during that Show Foundation interview. And yet... And yet, in the final interview that she gives in 1998, and also that Chaim gives, she is joined by her granddaughter and her daughter to discuss, at the end, the inheritances of memory. And this is what is unique and what is, I think, the most valuable part of the Shoah Foundation, is that they cover a lot more material on the... uh, I mean, they have a system... That wants interviewers to ask questions that will break down the interview into three acts 40% for pre war life, 60%, sorry, 20% for pre war life, 60% for Holocaust era, and 20% for post war life. Now, that 20%, while still small, is much more significant than any other aspect of post war life covered or, or post Holocaust life covered by the Fortunoff Archive or the Holocaust Museum. It is the only archive of those three to dedicate on a, on, a, on a standardized, regular basis time to the post-war era on a consistent basis and on a widespread basis. And it's precisely at that testimony of and Haim where her daughter, Elida, and Tegan, her granddaughter, come on screen and have a discussion in essence about what we talked about at the beginning of this interview which is about post-memory about the inheritances the legacies of living in the shadow of the Holocaust as a daughter and granddaughter of survivors and it's one of the most illuminating aspects of a testimony that I've ever watched and it means that you have to stick around to the end at a moment which you think is going to be filled perhaps with mockish sentimentality is actually filled with uh, great insight and great honesty and great openness between three generations. And, and while I perhaps sound as if I'm being critical of the Shaw Foundation, I'm incredibly um, in all of the work that they've done in terms of the scale and also the fact that they've given voice to that after the Holocaust, that post-Holocaust life, which is unfortunately missing from a great deal of testimonies. And, and to have that kind of exchange, the exchange they have between Selma and, and Haim and their daughter and granddaughter is, is incredibly unique and I and I wouldn't have been able to find that in any other
0: archive. So, so we've taken up a lot of your time um, and, and there's lots of directions I could go kind of to, to wind this up and I'm honestly fascinated by this idea you were sketching out earlier of, of, of the ways to use modern technology to Allow survivors to continue to speak, but but let me go a different way um, because I suspect many people who listen to this either attend or plan some kind of Holocaust memorial event, and I'm, and and that's a little bit different kind of testimony. Uh, many of these, of course, feature the feature survivors or or their children sometimes. Um. So so maybe, and I know I'm springing this on you. Um. I wonder what somebody who plans events with centered around survivors can learn um from your research
1: one of the things you can learn is that no testimony is ever uh, given for the first time, or unless you're at this stage um, that it's quite likely that even if it's the act of writing in a diary or the act of telling a friend or someone in the family that that what you're encountering when someone is giving their testimony has been encountered before and the tendency might be to think that they have a rote approach to that particular um, performance and, and that we not be afraid by the way, to use terms like performance when we talk about Holocaust testimony, that's not a, a dirty word when it comes to discussing, that, that actually there still is this strong ethical responsibility um, to listen carefully and attend to survivors and to realize that even if this isn't the first time that they've given this testimony, that there is, for many survivors, that documentary, imperative, The Imperative to Survive, and you'll hear the stories of people and testimonies tell of that drive to survive in order to make sure that these stories are told. And, and perhaps that's become a cliche, but it's something that resonates with a great deal, with a great many survivors and survivor communities. This imperative to tell, and, and that imperative to make sure that that story is taken with you, and also that it that it impacts the world outside of the Holocaust. For me. Whether or not a survivor is interested in, in creating some sort of linkage between their story and the story of, of a survivor of Cambodia or of Rwanda or of Darfur or of Bosnia or Armenia or other genocides, um, I think those are linkages that are important to make. I think it's difficult for me to conceive of an event to commemorate and memorialize the Holocaust that doesn't also in, in some indirect way even draw uh, draw our attention without even necessarily naming these other genocides because it depends on the context of whether that's appropriate, but to in essence prick our ethical consciousness, um, our humanitarian consciousness to the suffering of others. Because ultimately I think that's what is central to testimony in many respects is the way in which it forges that contract between an interviewer and an interviewee and the future and anticipated audiences for those testimonies that it not that it trains our ethical reflexes because i'm not sure if that's possible but at least it serves as a template or as a model for how we might listen and bear witness to the suffering of others and so if there's a way that we can listen to and engage a holocaust survivor at an event like the one that you're describing in a way that even if indirectly somehow leads us to ask questions about the world outside of the Holocaust and the world outside of respective communities and outside of the world of that respective event then then I think that's truly productive and I think that means whether that's turning to the to the work of someone like Michael Rothberg um, who's written about multi-directional memory or looking at the work of others like Martha Minow who look from Harvard Law School who looked at the ways in which we must kind of have a certain moral consciousness when we look at the Holocaust but also beyond the Holocaust I think that there's that need to at least create if not a direct linkage at least an underlying ethical linkage that connects us with the suffering of others beyond the Holocaust
0: that's a great place to end. It's a great book, Noah, um, and I heartily recommend it. Um, I have to say, I'm I'm a tiny bit intimidated by the, as, as a historian, by the time and the energy required to approach the interviews as critically and as thoughtfully as as, as you suggest is necessary. Um, but I think you've made a convincing case for it. Um, and I always end by asking uh, people maybe to to say to suggest a, a, a something that you were moved by, or you found important, or, or I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but uh, what book, or video, or movie, or, or, or what, what should I read this weekend or watch this weekend that was important to you while you were doing this research?
1: For me, there's a Hungarian filmmaker by the name of Peter Forgas, F-O-R-G-A-C-S, um, and he, he has been given a lot of attention, um, in the documentary film circuit, but not nearly enough attention outside of that circuit. Um, and he's someone who I had the pleasure of studying and also meeting during graduate school at USC. Someone who, not, not, not Jewish, um, a performance artist, um, Initially, someone who was doing fine arts in Hungary, um, someone who my mentor Michael Renoff has has written about at length. And this is a filmmaker is really interesting because he he makes films, at least many of his films are made exclusively using archived found footage. And one film that he made called The Maelstrom is about uh, a Dutch Jewish family, um, and we see through the home movies that were preserved by one surviving member of the family and which were you know, given to Peter Forgard and re-edited and recompiled with music and manipulation of some of the footage brought in we see uh, the unfolding of the Holocaust from the family lens, so to speak, from the home movies that were collected during uh, before during, I should say before and during uh, Nazi occupation and one of the images that stands out and an image that I will always remember is a piece of footage which was taken from the home movies of this family of the family as they were preparing on the night prior to their uh, deportation uh, in their home, sewing the Jewish star in their clothing, making last-minute preparations. And though they didn't know their fate, Precisely because perhaps they didn 't know their fate that there 's something about the home movie footage that captures, yes, some of the anxiety, but also the family 's warmth and their joy at this moment in history before they knew what history would unfold for them, and the idea that to use to go back to what you said that monuments and memorials and events can serve as forms of testimony, so too can these fragments of home movies that these traces of traces, these traces of these individuals in their lives. Um, that we not forget the lives that they lived in their homes, that we not only remember their deaths, but also that we remember their lives and that found footage film, films that are taken from home movies, such as in the work of Peter Forgosh on his film The Maelstrom, which is admittedly hard to get a hold of, but if you contact the filmmaker Peter Forgosh, I'm sure he'll be more than happy to send you a link to it. It's it's one of the most powerful films about the Holocaust that I've seen, and perhaps one of the most powerful films of any kind that I've seen. Certainly one of the most singular films. So that would be on my list of films to to look at.
0: I, I will have to do that. Thank you. Um, what are you working on now?
1: Um, right now I'm working on uh, a two main things. One is an, an article on Raul Hilberg and his and the outtakes that were taken. Um, that is to say the over two hundred hours of outtakes that were shot for a film that's nine and a half hours long. So Good Club lore. Onsman Shoah. Yeah. So there's been a great deal of research, really rich research that's been done on, on, on Club Onsman Shoah now that's turning attention to the outtakes which have been housed and are housed at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So I'm contributing a volume that's on Shoah and which deals in large part with the outtakes. Um and so a lot of the key questions that I've taken from my book about what happens that is left off the cutting room. Or the, what, what, what in essence is left on the cutting room floor? What constitutes mar- the marginalia of a film? Um, I'm looking at now with Hilberg's role, uh, as, as the quote unquote historian for Lanzmann's Shoah. So that's the project I'm currently completing. And then I've got the project that I'm collaborating with a colleague of mine on Pinkus Guter, who is a survivor of, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto, who not so long ago was, uh, well, he gave testimony to the Shoah Archive in the mid to late 1990s, and then a few years ago gave testimony to Stephen Smith, the head of the Shoah Foundation. Over 2,000 questions were asked of Pincus, and Pincus was rendered using dozens of cameras into a virtual forum and using artificial intelligence. You can go to the Skokie Museum in Skokie, Illinois you can go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington DC and you can interact with Pincus in his full almost I should say in his full body form and ask him questions and based on this artificial intelligence software interact for better and for worse with Pincus asking him a series of questions about his experience so I'm talking about uh, the implications of quote-unquote holographic testimony though again it's not really a holographic but it, it emulates of the holographic effect so i'm writing on that as well so most of my work is looking and then having just recently published a piece on how a lot of the actual approaches that we talked about over the last hour or so that the especially the strong foundation came up with are now being utilized in places beyond so i I published a piece on the ways in which those those testimony practices are being used in in cambodia to collect testimony there it's also being used in places like Rwanda, places like Guatemala. And so the, the ways in which these testimonial paradigms migrate from one genocidal context to another, and what are the implications of taking the Shoah Foundation model and applying it to these non-Holocaust case studies and raises a, a series of, of important questions. So those, those are the three, the three projects that are most current for me. That,
0: that, that's fascinating. And, and, um... I would love to have you on the show sometime again and talk about some of these things and, and pursue this.
1: Well, thanks. Those. Thanks, Kyle. I really, really enjoyed talking with you as well. It's just really been a great pleasure.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks again, um, and take care. You've been listening to an interview with Noah Schenker about his book, Reframing Holocaust Testimony. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when we conclude this summer's occasional series of podcasts that address the question of how genocides might be prevented or mitigated with an interview with Carrie booth Walling. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.